Hey up friends, how's it going? My name's Matt Barr and you are listening to Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. It's a show where I try and cover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this episode. feels like a while since I've done one of these. Um, probably about three or four weeks, I'd say. And uh, yeah, I've just been pretty busy this autumn, so I've not been able to sort of give it the full weekly output that I normally do on the podcast. I'm going to talk a little bit about what's been going on in Housekeeping Corner. Um, but before I get into the episode with Kimmy Fasani, this week's guest, just a quick apology for the croakiness of my voice in this intro. I've been at the Kendall Mountain Festival for the last, well, over over the weekend. And, uh, you know, it's that classic sort of trade show vibe. A lot of people around, a lot of beer to drink, a lot of films to see, a lot of late nights, a lot of early mornings. Um, so I've kind of got that, you know, that sort of trade show flu slash immune system deficit going on. But, um, you know, I'm back with it. I'm recording this episode. And I just want to say a quick thanks to two listeners that I met at Kendall, Luke and Chris, who really did make my weekend by uh, seeking me out, buying me pints. Luke had brought me a book all the way from wherever he lives, just so he could give it to me at the trade show. And um, both were hugely enthusiastic about looking sideways and what I do, and just basically put a massive spring in my step and made my year, really. Um, So thanks, lads. Really appreciated that. All right, Kimmy Fasani. Yeah, the legendary luminous Kimmy Fasani. So this one came about in quite an interesting way. Basically, my friends at White Lines asked me to uh, interview Kimmy for the annual that they do every year. This was back in the summer. This was probably about July 2022, um, if that is the year, I believe it is. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to, but obviously I'd really like to do it for the podcast as well. So we agreed that we'd do a bit of a like print audio double header with this one. And I agreed that I would um, do the print piece first. So if you've got the White Lines Annual, and I'm sure there's quite a few people that listen to this who have already ordered it, you've probably seen that, that print version of this conversation. Um, And then, you know, now that that's out, I'm able to release the full audio version of this conversation because obviously we couldn't do the full audio transcription in the mag because that would have took up the whole mag. Um, So yeah, double header. Um, if you've read the print article and you've enjoyed it, this is the full version. I think we're. I think this is like an hour and a half. This conversation, and it's bloody great. I mean, Kimmy, if you know Kimmy, you're going to know she is someone that's always been held in great affection by the snowboarding community. Um, she's also somebody who's long been aware of the ability her profile gives her to shift the needle and change the conversation, as she puts it. Um, she first did that when she became a mum by challenging the perception of what it means to be a mother and a professional snowboarder by really tackling that head on, you know, and, and embracing that challenge. And uh, she's done it again recently with the wisdom and grace she's shown in sharing her experience of being diagnosed with and treated for breast cancer. Um, and in doing so, she's explored the biggest, scariest themes of all. And I think she's made a real difference. You know, the way she talks, Kimmy, on social media and through her own various endeavors, like the films that she makes, is a real combination of grace, beauty, great generosity of spirit. And I think she's really, you know, made the collective snowboarding community look at these themes, death, serious illness, grief, in a new light. I mean, she certainly has made me consider that. You know, these things are kind of, they're always hidden in plain sight. We, illness, death, like I say, we never really talk about them. 
or we never even really think about them until they're in the immediate future. Um, so when you've got somebody like Kimmy who's like confronted these things and addressed these taboos openly, it's got real impact. And, you know, she's shared these experiences in a particularly vulnerable, occasionally confrontational and extremely generous way that gives awe-inspiring power to the way she's chosen to to tell her story through the prism of snowboarding. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's... And the conversation that we have, like, really reflects that, you know, and... I was just really blown away by this conversation with Kimmy and by the way that she, um, the, you know, like I said, the generosity, the grace and the openness with which she approached this chat. I really found it moving um, and I really found it a properly nourishing com- conversation, really. Um, so I hope you do too. That's a pretty long intro. That's five minutes. Um, so sorry about that. You probably tell them about practice. Um, it's been a few, it's been a while but you know go figure that's our role um so i hope you enjoy this one i'll be back in about an hour and 25 minutes um for housekeeping corner which i think it might be a bit of a long one um so i'll see you diehards that stick around for that at the end in the meantime here's me and kimmy enjoy How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm back in Mammoth and my family and I just got over um, having COVID. Like right when I finished my treatment, we got COVID. So it's like, oh no, we've just been through the ringer, but we're good. We're good now. How was your COVID experience this time around? Pretty mild. We got yeah. it in January and I was going through chemo and that was like pretty brutal. My side effects weren't as bad, but just like having that happen when everything else was happening was kind of annoying. Um, but sure. This time around, it was like two or three days of us kind of not feeling well. The kids had fevers and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar thing. I got it in June. I thought it was hay fever. Okay. Because I was sneezing a lot and I was like, I was like, oh, but I should do a test, you know? And and it was like, as soon as the, as soon as it hit the thing, it was like, bang, you know? And it's like, all right. Okay. That's definitely (laughs) cool. Because I'd I'd never actually um, tested positive until that point. So, and I've got to be honest. Yeah, it was it was it was the most relaxing couple of days I've had all year, to be honest, because I was <laughs> like, OK, I can't go out and I can't go to work. So I'll uh, I'll just I'll just do this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just just before we start, then. So d- you got the gist, right? So obviously, I, well, not obviously, but I run this podcast called Looking Sideways and I've had quite a few of, of our mutual friends on there. Actually, I'm sure you saw that. Um because I'm good pals, you're good friends with Laura, aren't you? Laura Bodmer and Annie, Annie Fast and Jen Shirowski. And yeah, they're all, they're all close friends of mine as well f- through snowboarding. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so when Ed at White Lines asked me to do this piece, obviously I was like, well, it'd be really great to, to record it as if it's a podcast thing to, to get both things out of it. So um, he agreed. Um, he, he, he was, he asked me if I could wait until the magazine came out, which is obviously like completely fair enough. Um, so my, it's pretty casual the way I approach this. Like I, I don't really have a list of questions or um, I just try and have a chat really and see where we end up. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously it would be great to cover your experiences with uh, with your diagnosis and the treatment, um, which I'm sure you guessed we would like to talk about. But really just, I mean, so many things we could talk about, right? Um, you know, with also your 
kind of path as a, as a mother and a professional snowboarder is also like a really interesting topic, I think, because I, I run a business um, and my business partner has two small kids. So I've had like this really real firsthand experience of seeing a very close female friend try and raise a family while keeping their career intact. And it's, it's quite eye opening, really like the way that women, how differently women are treated compared to men in that position. So that, I think that could be a really interesting theme. Um, but yeah, let's just see how we get on really, if that, if okay. that works. Yeah, that yeah. sounds great. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, well, we actually, actually, before we start, we, we did, we, we met in Vail 10 years ago. I can remember it quite clearly. Um, at the they've got that snowboard museum there it was like a Burton Nokia event so we did we did kind of we, we met all those years ago um so nice to see you again yeah, yeah you too I think I was dealing with a uh, knee injury at that point so I was yeah you weren't riding that's right I think you'd been out for about quite a long period of time from what I remember yeah I was a year off snow from that injury and um at that point that was uh, I kind of just signed back on with Burton and then got injured that fall or like that early winter and was off snow for a year. And it just really reprioritized how I approached snowboarding. And in, in what way? I was really excited at the potential of going to the Olympics for slope style. So that's, I like got back into riding big jumps and trying to get myself into a place where I could go to the Olympics in it would have been 2013 14 yeah it would be it would have been sochi wouldn't it exactly yeah the russia one yeah and so i was like going into that 2012 2013 year hoping to maybe make the u.s team and then i had this horrific injury where i drifted off a park jump and did my acl mcl pcl broken pelvis big hematoma on my femur and my doctor basically told me at that point to start family planning that I probably wouldn't return to snowboarding at the level I wanted to be at. And I remember doing some obligations for Burton and one of them was showing up at the US Open in Vail. Yeah, and at that event, that thing they did at the museum, didn't they? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And just being around our community, I mean, our community is so uplifting and yeah, there was absolutely zero part of me that knew that I was going to stop snowboarding. I was going to do everything I could to get back on snow. Yeah. So, yeah. I find the American snowboard team, I've got to say, just so supportive of each other. Like it is the, the you know, like the professional end of it, like the media, the photographers, the riders, because I was over in Jackson for natural selection, working on that in January. And that's the most I've really hung out with that group of people for quite a long time probably to be honest since since i was doing some work with, with uh, nokia around the us open it did really strike me the genuine sense of community and camaraderie that does seem to exist between everybody over there it's it is a genuine thing isn't it like it's quite a palpable thing yeah i feel like all of us speak the same language even though you might not speak to a lot of the people at one time or maybe ever, but like the first time you have a conversation with anybody who really snowboards, it's like you have this deeper connection because you both see the mountains in similar ways through being on a snowboard. Yeah. Yeah. So had that always been a goal to um, go to the Olympics like from, or, or, or was it more one of those kind of, cause it, you remember what it was like at the time it was, there was a real gradual, it's hard to explain you know like there was a lot of skepticism wasn't there and there was a lot of you know we don't need to tell that story again but it it was quite interesting 
when when slope style and big air for example were, were kind of included it did change things for a lot of people didn't it you know people were like ah actually maybe that is that is something i could you know try and take part of at least once in my career was that kind of how it was for you yeah when i was a little girl i was a gymnast and i my biggest goal was that i wanted to be an olympic gymnast and oh, i right, had a okay. lot of injuries that set me back from doing that but that ultimately led me to snowboarding and I was one of few girls that competed in Tahoe and I made um, like that amateur success work. But I remember very vividly, I think it was 1999, I made the front cover or front page of the sports section of our local newspaper in Truckee, California. Right. And it was like, my goal was the Olympics. Like in 1999, I was sitting there saying that I wanted to go to the Olympics. And it definitely changed over time, right? I wasn't looking to be an Olympic snowboarder. I, I just really believed that being able to compete on a level of that caliber, like on your own self, being able to push yourself and progress to a level of snowboarding that could speak to a big audience of snowboarding and show progression at that level would be really impactful, especially as a female growing up in this sport. I just thought it was really it would be a really great opportunity for me as a woman to show other girls and other families that women could be on that stage and really have a progressive outlook. So I think that's where my, my motivation came from. And when it did open up to slope style, I was like, kind of, I was kind of expired in competing, but at the same time I was like, maybe I can harness it. But the universe quickly shut me down with that injury and was like, that's not your goal. Yeah, right. Okay. I'm really struck by what you said. Actually, before I mention that, would it, your mic is sort of catching a little bit on your zipper, I think. Is that, yeah, could we maybe see if we could keep it over there? Is that all right? Yeah, yeah just because, thank you. Um, I'm really struck by what your doctor said to you. Like, um, well, you might as well become a mum then. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I'm being, a, you know, maybe a little bit brutal there, but in itself as a man, that, no doctor would ever utter that sentence to me, I don't think. That's really true. And I think he was trying to be a realist for me saying, I know how much damage you've done to your body and maybe you should consider a different outlet. And with all due respect, like what you just brought up is so true. I mean, there's just different verbiage that's spoken over women than there would ever be over men. And I've tried to do a lot within snowboarding, within action sports to kind of shift that narrative and shift that perspective so that we really see it as an equal opportunity for all of us. And sure, there's different learning curves for women to go through, especially as entering in motherhood. Yeah. Um, But it's a collective understanding of what that looks like. And it's a collective storytelling to make it acceptable. Yeah. And together with the men in that industry and uh, the outsiders too. We have to have that deeper recognition that just because I'm a woman doesn't limit my capability of being a great athlete and a mother. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's so striking how much of a conversation it is in every sport, even someone like Serena, you know, it's, it's like, Oh, she had a baby, you know, you know, like there's it. I think what, 
it's the it's the cultural assumption I think that I always find quite fascinating around this topic because it isn't really just about career as well. It's a bit more insidious than that, isn't it? It's a bit more about the division of labor of being a parent as well. Like you know, like in terms of of what it actually entails, what your roles are. When I'm very much basing this upon my experience of speaking to, of observing my friend and 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 seeing how she's navigated this and a lot of, a lot of my female friends you know who've who've had really successful careers and have been faced with this quite unspoken thing as well like it isn't it isn't something that's addressed as directly as for example you've addressed it is it you know like so it's almost like one of those things well it's probably a bit like getting seriously ill you know like you you we kind of hide we we kind of put all that stuff in a bit of a box as a society don't we we don't really like you you have to deal with it as it happens to you almost it seems like so and that's the thing i find quite fascinating about these cultural assumptions around motherhood and 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 careers and being a professional athlete because there just is a bit of an assumption that like that's the work that you'll do then you know you're the woman so you'll have the kids and you'll raise the kids and you'll park your career and you'll probably do most of the domestic stuff as well while the man goes out and does the man stuff you know like it's never stated that explicitly but it is the role that society does seem to expect women to fulfill was that your experience of it a hundred percent i feel like there's there's a lot to uh kind of unfold in all that you just said and i think that there's so that was a very long question. I'm quite notorious no. for that. <laughs> no, it's 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 beautifully said. I mean, there's so many layers to it. And until you're a parent or you've watched somebody really close to you go through it, you don't really understand all the layers. And yeah. there's emotional layers. There's a self-grievance. There's a selfless to selfish side of it, uh, especially coming from being an athlete and always having that selfish pursuit of passion. I've always been really inspired by being out in nature and being in the mountains. And the thing that I've personally experienced is that the mountains are so far away from my child. You know, I, I compared myself prior to having kids. I looked at all these options of all the other athletes having kids and I was like, oh my gosh, like I can do this. They make it look so much easier than what I've experienced because their babies right. can be really close. Yeah, you know, a tennis player. I, 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 yeah, I understand. Yeah, you can like the, the, the you can almost like assimilate motherhood and the, and the lifestyle a bit more easily because obviously it's just so much travel involved with what you do. Yeah, and, day, and, right? and being in the big mountains, it's like yeah. normally I'm out of service and it's hours away. Yeah. And you have to have reliable childcare. And especially in the US, childcare is something that is not supported as like a universal need um, for women. And so you're trying to find the childcare. Uh, and then you need somebody that you can trust that can travel with you. And I mean, some of this sounds so privileged, but it is like it's necessity for me to do my job. And I've lost both parents to cancer. So I don't really have like parent support to help yeah. me take care of my children where, I mean, there's just a lot of factors that people don't necessarily consider until you have a child. And then you're realizing like, okay, how do I get back out there now? Like, yeah, it's hard. And that's what I mean though. Like when, when a, when a professional snowboarder becomes a parent, a male professional snowboarder, like I, I, I'm probably making a fairly large assumption, but I'm assuming that a lot of what you just said doesn't really come into it. Cause it's like, okay, well I've, you know, I'll take some time and then I'm, 
I can get straight back to it, you know. And so the the role reversal for for you is to to try and yeah, like balance both of these things, isn't it? In a way that enables you to be fulfilled in both areas of your life, presumably. Yeah, and I I mean I'm really grateful because from the beginning when I was pregnant with our first who's now four and a half years old, when I talked to Burton about it and all of my contracts were up at that point, I just really was pretty straightforward that I didn't want to stop snowboarding and I didn't know how it was going to look, but that I would like to work with my sponsors to make this look however we can so that I can still be a part of the team and still be on my snowboard and still hopefully inspire other families to get out in nature. And as soon as I had Cohen, I started traveling. I mean, we, my husband and I, my husband's obviously, he's a professional skier. So we're both chasing the same conditions. Um, and we, we did a lot of traveling the first year with him and it was wonderful. It was great, but it was exhausting and it was worth it at the same time. But having the support of my sponsors made that possible. Yeah. And I think now I look uh, at what you were just saying, like with the, the looking at a male's career and a female's career, and I have to give the males credit as well. Like I, I know it's not necessarily easy for them to go into parenthood either because now they are going to be leaving their baby and their wife um, at home or their partner at home. And that's an added stress. You know, they have pressures now that they have to show up for uh, and maybe they don't want it to affect their careers. And they definitely don't have verbiage in their contracts supporting them in the paternal side of parenthood. So it might be even more stressful and kind of even more untalked about on that side. And that's kind of where I'm really hoping to like change that narrative. Like I've, I've asked my sponsors, not just to support women, but also to support the father figures because that will help collectively make this a better um, momentum and kind of pendulum shift. Well, exactly. You're, you're, you're obviously so right. Like that, that is the complete, that is when it would get truly progressive, wouldn't it? When it was just, a, it was just a straight decision, you know? And if, and like you say, if a, yeah, I'm kind of guilty of making the same assumptions that I'm almost criticizing there because it is, it is, it's nuanced, isn't it? Like I say, this is why I find this area so fascinating because, you know, the areas of life, like I said, that we don't, you don't really, we don't really collectively interrogate or talk about that much is where the kind of quirks of human nature really sort of flourish, don't they? And I think, I th- so yeah, it's quite, it is fascinating. So I'm also really interested to hear you sort of, sounds like it was quite intentional the way you approached this wider conversation really then so you because you know you you mentioned a couple of points you said you kind of wanted to change the narrative you know you you sounds like you pitched it to Bert and it's like well we could handle it this way was that always at your was that always at the the kind of forefront when when it became a a choice you know like a decision a, a point in your life that you were at you thought well I could yeah I could probably use this as fuel really you know I mean, admittedly, I had no idea what I was doing when I first asked Burton to support me. I was so scared of losing my sponsors and losing everything that I had worked so passionately towards in the mountains. And I just knew I wasn't done. You know, I I, yeah. I didn't like that motherhood was putting this stamp on me that I was done. And yeah. I wanted that to be an open conversation. And so now that I have two small children, I've had sponsors support me and we've been working really closely, changing the verbiage and so many females contracts. I can't say I've taken credit for that, but I work with a nonprofit that's called andmother.org. Uh, it's called and mother. Um, and really that foundation, that, that organization is 
trying to shift how sponsors can put this verbiage into contracts. And so it's been an ongoing story. But I guess where I'm at now is like, I, I just really see that there's such a huge opportunity for brands to know that my story only gets better by having kids and family. And we can share these authentic stories of women transforming into mothers and still remaining athletes. And I think it's really inspiring because there's far more mothers in the world than there will be snowboarders or outdoor enthusiasts, you know? And so if we can share this conversation of how motherhood can bring you to nature, I think we're only opening up our sport that much more. And I love watching all the new mothers come into the sport as well. Like Leanne Pelosi, you know, having a baby, I feel like these women are so powerful in everything that they've done for snowboarding, and they are only going to be bringing a richer story for other people to be inspired by. And also, hopefully, this is helping the whole industry realize that like we can continue carrying all of these amazing, legendary snowboarders, men and women, yeah. through all of these stories and transitions, and it's going to be really impactful. Yeah, it's such a good way of looking at it. Because this, it kind of when you were talking, then I was. It's it's kind of, I mean, snowboarding is growing up, isn't it? As a culture, really, you know, and 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 literally and metaphorically, obviously, it's what forty odd years old, really, as an industry, maybe fifty years old as an industry, and the stories that the industry chose to tell for a very long time were very one dimensional. Like I think we can all agree on that, you know. And I always found it quite baffling because I always thought. You, it's just it's just limiting at the end of the day like if we want more people to come and do this and we want more people you know ramming quad corks down the throat is not really the way to do that like and whatever you think of that I just more mean like you say from a storytelling and cultural perspective and it it's kind of the right idea at the right time isn't it because it feels like the culture is kind of able to actually listen to that and do something positive about it you know rather than I think 20 years ago it might have been a bit of a different story I'm not sure there would have been that much of an appetite for it really I don't know if you agree but it just it it feels in line with the way that the culture is going and you I think you can really see those growing pains across all the activities surf skate snow like as counterculture meets mass culture really you know and you have to it, it can't just be about young lads you know in the 20s anymore kind of really which is kind of what it was for a very long time yeah and I I mean I think that there's like this deeper dimension that we can go into because 20 years ago women were still maybe men too I my peers that were females were lying about their age you know they were really scared that if they went past a certain age they wouldn't be accepted in snowboarding anymore or they wouldn't be thought of as like at their peak And that was something that I experienced as like a teenager watching these women not be able to be honest about their age because they might not be accepted in the sport. And then I watched some of those same women start families and they immediately just retired. And I don't feel like the conversation was even an option. I didn't think that they, I don't think they even thought that it was something that the industry would accept. And I think that's why I was carrying that fear going into all of my sponsors and 
I was expecting them to do what they had done with all the other women. And it wasn't a, they did something to them. It was an assumption. It was expectation. It was how we were kind of laid out in this um, path of acceptance. And really it's when we can use our voice to say, Hey, there's something that's important to me. And I don't know if anybody else realizes it all of a sudden, all these people start coming forward and are like, Oh my gosh, we didn't re we didn't realize that was happening. And it's like this big, perspective like zoom out where you start seeing the bigger picture and I still think that snowboarding deserves that core space you know I feel like that voice of all the progression all the quads like whatever the progression is and the the youth that is doing that has a has a place but there's also and it it always will and it it always always will will. because because that is the that was the original driver of the culture wasn't it but yeah equally it just always felt like once you got past that point, which everybody does because everybody gets old, you know, and obviously some people carry on ripping uh, to a very, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like that's all good, but it just felt like it. it's just better that there's more entry points, isn't it? It's just better that there's more stories as you put it, that, that like, you know, this is also for you. Like th- there's those, that's that. And that's great. And that's like we say, the cultural foundation of it always will be, always should be. But equally, there are other ways of experiencing this, which are equally as valid, you know? Yeah. Like, and if and, like and- we want to get that younger generation, like those little kids, you know, like snowboarding now has gear for three, four year olds to get involved. And it's always yeah. been available for skiing, but not for snowboarding. And so now if you welcome families back in, especially mothers, you're yeah. going to see that increase from the day that those kids are able to step on a snowboard. And it's like, yeah. it's not just the women you're supporting, it's their family. Yeah, of course. I was really struck by something you said earlier. And this is, to be honest, one of the themes I really want to talk about in terms of, um, you know, your diagnosis and the, and the illness that you've had. Um, you know, I look, I look on your Instagram and you get told a lot like how positive you are and how inspirational and how you know like how the, the way that you've dealt with with the whole situation is, is clearly like very very inspirational to people and you, you mentioned when you're the olympic conversation you said something like well you know the universe um told me that that wasn't for me you know, like the way you frame that was very glass half full let's put it that way um and so, so it's that territory, isn't it? That like it's so, so that 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 kind of way that you deal with these things and the way that you that I'm very interested in that. And so, wait, let's talk about the snowboarding part first. Like the that that comment that you made. Like, have you always had that ability to to do that to kind of extrapolate positives from potentially pretty awful situations and and kind of you know turn it into positive lessons it does sort of look that way from the outside you know yeah I don't think that I've always been able to I still definitely struggle with it trying to always pull the positive perspective I I had a hard childhood and yet I was so supported by my mother and I was really encouraged to be out in nature and I realized how beneficial being in nature was and just being active in general. And I also realized that if I could shift things and make them positive, it was a lot better mentally and physically, I was going to be in a happier place. 
And so through my life and through conditioned experiences of injuries or being dropped by sponsors, I just started seeing that there was like this path of least resistance and not forcing something because it's what you want, but more going with the flow and accepting things for what they are so that you can grow through life instead of feel like life is happening to you. It's like, I really am a big believer that we're on these journeys of self-discovery and we each have such a unique story and unique experiences to help other people. And I think the things that I've been through, if I share them, maybe somebody else out there is struggling or can be moved by what I share or have had similar experiences and you all of a sudden don't feel alone. And so not to get true to like downer, but I feel like that is really the uplifting side of where I'm sharing my stories from is like, if this is something that's important to me, maybe other people would find it important, or maybe I can shift the needle within the industry and start a conversation. And if everybody says no, that's fine. But I still want to live my passionate life doing things that I feel like are intentional and positive and the more I push and the more I use my words to show people what I'm going through, maybe there will be a bigger pendulum swing for other people. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, so much to unpick there. I mean, I think the thing to say is like death, illness, grief, the, the things that I mentioned that we put in boxes collectively as, I mean, I'm talking about, I'm very specifically talking about like Western society there, obviously, you know, like our kind of the culture that we live in, they're all going to be in our lives. Like that, like that everyone's going to experience what you've experienced, like to some level, like, and so that, and that, that's a blindingly obvious comment, <laughs> but, but most people kind of go through life as if they're not going to experience that so it it's and i'm i'm the same like i you know like you just don't think about it until it until it happens until you have to deal with it and so i think that's one of the great the way that you've told the story of what's what you've been going through for the last couple of years i think that's for me that's where it has real real power because i think it's it you're, you're confronting it almost like four four people if that makes sense, especially the generation that we are, where, you know, you're young, you're a young woman. So for, for you to, it's, it's, it's early for you to experience this. If, if it, when, when people are in the sixties and seventies, it's a bit, yeah, okay, fair. You know, we're, we're expecting that, you know, you, you, that's where you put it, isn't it? You put it in that part, you put it in the future, but the reality is it's happening to people every single day at whatever age they are. There's no rhyme or reason to it. So for me, the, the, the way that you've told that story with this intention and is is that's the power of it you know as much as the the kind of things that people do so you know the bravery of it the the, the openness the transparency that all obviously has a place i understand that but it touches something a little bit deeper for me you know like about about these situations that we all will face you know whether we like it or not it's going to happen yeah and i it's in some ways it's funny because all the compliments, I guess I'll say they're compliments of people telling me that I'm strong or inspiring or brave or courageous. Um, 
I almost like build a shield to those words because I don't necessarily I, feel... I did wonder to be honest I did wonder about that like yeah. I did wonder how you would take that like when you because it's obviously so well-intentioned but I did think well I'm interested like, yeah I feel like I have a shield against some of it because I don't necessarily want to be strong yeah I don't want to have to be strong anymore and yet I've been given a life path that has allowed me to find a courageous side of a deeper self that maybe not everybody has to experience at a younger age. And like you were saying, I feel like, I mean, I'm 38 years old. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have breast cancer. No, you're, you're, you're a young woman. Like it's, 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 it's young. <laughs> yeah. And I'm healthy and I'm active. I felt like I was living my life in a way that was mitigating that risk you know yeah. I feel like as snowboarders and as a backcountry sporter uh, as a backcountry snowboarder I'm really calculated in how I approach risks and when I'm standing on top of those mountains I know exactly where I'm going I have control over my snowboard and sure things can still happen accidents can still happen but I'm so conditioned to know I like visualize how I'm going to make it down these huge mountains and I'm going to get up them. I know, you know, I know the course. And so when this diagnosis happened uh, for me, I'll say, because it really did uh, bring a whole different kind of perspective to my life. I realized that everything that I thought about breast cancer was not necessarily accurate. I've been a huge ambassador for boarding for breast cancer for over a decade. And I knew to check myself and I was pretty routine I was pretty routined with checking myself, but the thing that I didn't realize was just because I'm healthy and active, it's not going to keep me from getting cancer. But what my doctor just really inspired me by saying is she's like, "No, it's just going to make you a better patient." You know, you're going to be stronger as a patient going through it because you're healthy and active. And I thought that that was a really great piece of insight that I think a lot of people should be aware, you know, and as life happens with us, as we grow through all of these experiences that test and challenge us to be deeper understanding individuals of who we are and our surroundings, I feel like it's really important to know that if it does happen, if cancer does happen to you, there are ways for you to get through it. And it's mentally, physically being strong and capable to channel the energy that's being poured into you. And that's kind of a roundabout answer of getting back to how these people have really fed a positive response from me. It's like people's reactions and interactions with what I'm sharing has made me stronger. It's yeah. them that have made me stronger. It's not necessarily that it's me. It's because I yeah. have an incredible community of people supporting me. And I think that's where we need to really remember as a community, when people are down, like we talk about mental health, it's about the community. It's about lifting each other up. It's about supporting that individualistic side of all of us. How we are saying like, there's a box. We don't all have to fit within that box. And I'm trying to teach this to my children. Um, you know, the box was created by society so that we would all kind of fit into a mold of what should be expected. But really, 
snowboarding in general, I just don't feel like already fit inside that box. And so if we take that big zoom out approach and we look at what that box is and we all say, no, like we're all individuals, we're all going to go through these struggles. And yet we can relate emotionally with one another because we know what challenges feel like and we know what we need. We need support and encouragement. And that's where I'm at. You mentioned, well, I've got a couple of questions off the back of that, but the first one I was going to say is, um, I think like my personal fear about the future scenarios, not that I'm somebody that particularly like catastrophizes, you know, it's not like I'm sat here like worrying about this stuff, but when I do, when it, you know, I think everybody thinks about this stuff and I think my fear, and I imagine a lot of people share this fear is that they won't handle it with the equanimity that it seems like you've you've handled it um because it's 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 one thing to sort of talk about the approach that you just outlined but it's another thing to actually kind of do it in the face of something so colossal you know um so that so i guess that's the question really was I understand it with snowboarding injuries, you know, that's, that's a certain level, but like, then we're talking something, you know, then we're talking like the real, real stuff, aren't we? We're talking death. We're talking, you know, you've got a young family, like everything that comes with that. Um, so did the, the tools that you'd developed over the, over the years that, that enabled you to, to, to look at this colossal situation in this, in this way, did you have more work to do or did they, did they immediately serve you? Those tools served me and it was the mountains. The mountains provided me so many experiences where I had to kind of pull every experience into a toolbox. And I have such a great memory of so many really challenging decision-making opportunities when I've been in the mountains uh, and going through this diagnosis from the day I was diagnosed to sitting in chemo was only three weeks. I was diagnosed with really aggressive stage three breast cancer. It was inflammatory, which meant immediately was already diagnosed at stage three. And then my tumor in my breast was really big. And so when I heard all of this kind of happen, uh, all the words that came out of my doctor's mouth, I immediately just started thinking about like the hardest days I've had in the mountains. Right. And I started compartmentalizing my approach. You know, I knew, I knew it was going to be a slog. I knew there was going to be a lot of moments that I wasn't going to think I could get through it. I knew that there would be peaks and valleys that I would definitely have to kind of find that inner voice and that inner energy where I was going to have to harness myself and know I had to dig deep to reach that summit. And I said it, I think in my first Instagram post, you know, like this is going to be a huge mountain to climb, but I have the tools and seriously, the mountains were my saving grace because the experiences that I've had in the mountains were how I navigated getting through all of this. And it was like taking one step at a time, one day at a time, uh, one chemo treatment at a time, really breaking it down into smaller digestible bits so that I didn't get too overwhelmed. And as soon as I got overwhelmed by that big picture, I just zoomed in my focus and started like taking every breath like I would turning down the mountain, you know, like the sloughs moving, you're breathing with the move 
like the sloughs moving and you're breathing with the mountain. And that really became my approach to every chemo treatment. And like, I just started like really trying to be in the moment with that experience so that I could survive. Wow. Just going to mention the mic again, if that's all right. It's just doing a little, little rattle again there. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm full of admiration for it really. Cause I, I, I think, yeah, I, I just don't, I think, I think it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to, it's a difficult thing to, to, to kind of, to view, think, to use that positivity, you know, to use that approach on such a grand scale. Like, uh, and again, I think there's, that's another layer of the, the power of the way that you've told this story, I think, because it, because it, it shows that you can do it, you know, that you can, you can actually look at it in, in this, in this way, if you choose, you know, and that's another word that I often come back to when I think about the way that you've approached this. It's like, it, there, it feels like, I mean, I guess that's the question. Would do you see that as a choice that you can make? Like that you can you can choose. I'm going to use it again because it's such a great analogy. Like the way you tell this story about yourself. Yes, I think it's a hundred percent a choice. I think how we approach life and challenges and experiences, and instead of like feeling like the poor me, why is this happening to me? It's like life isn't happening to us. It's happening for us. The whole point of us being here in my perspective is to grow and learn and experience and share these experiences. And it's similar to how I kind of approached amusement park, my the park shoot that I used to organize for a bunch of women to come together. And same with amusement mountain. It's like, I want to be a facilitator of information. I want to help expedite the learning curve of people of that next generation so that they don't have to go through all the challenges that I went through and have that take as many years as it took me. And if I can help be that voice through this diagnosis, I I also have to admit in some ways it was a survival technique. Like I had to choose to see the positive because I knew if I looked at the negative and I followed the darkness, I would die. So I had to find the light in every situation I could and don't get me wrong. I had plenty of dark days. I had so much emotion attached to this. I've been depressed. I've had panic attacks. Like I, I don't live completely in that present space of beauty and strength and inspiration. You know, I still struggle wholeheartedly, but every day I wake up and I know that I'm closer. You know, I know that I'm choosing to be happy. I know that I'm choosing to find the happiness within myself. And that's taken work. It takes a lot of work to find that. And it's also just that connection to nature, spending time outside. There's so much space in the mountains. There's so so much space when you're outside amongst the trees for you to feel those emotions. You know, sometimes when I'm in the confines of my home, I feel suffocated because there's not enough space for me to feel that big emotion. And I, I do feel like pulling everything that I've experienced through my life and through snowboarding the community. It's like, it's really taught me like the sunshine's there every day, you know, even if it's yeah. behind clouds, it's there. So if you can face your face, the sun and keep your face up towards the sun, it's going to keep everything a lot lighter. Um, you mentioned when you said um, that it, it happened for you, you said it had changed your perspective on life. Like, so the the obvious question beckons, like, is that something you could characterize? 
I feel like I've always lived a very full life. I've experienced so much. I've I found that deeper part of myself by really harnessing my energy in the hardest moments, standing on top of the tallest peaks. I've been in such isolated places of beauty. Cheers. <laughs> and Friday night over here, although it's booze-free Guinness, that one. So yeah, don't. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really what this did was it changed my perspective on the cliche things of not taking life for granted appreciating, appreciating every day. Uh, that perspective was definitely lifted to that forefront, but more than that, it's just showing us how much we can actually get through. And I now have this experience to bring back into the mountains so that when I have those days out there that I'm really struggling or I'm fearful or I'm looking to harness myself, like pulling that focus. I know what I've been through. And ironically, it happened the other day. My husband and I, we decided to go out on a little mountain scramble and it started pouring rain. And it was, it, it was one of those like type two funds where you're like, okay, all of a a sudden, all of a sudden we were just kind of stressed and I'm like, okay, well, I know what I've just been through. Like, I know I can get through this. And it just helps you pull that perspective of like, we are so much stronger than we think we are. And even in the moments that you think you can't handle anymore, you can. That's what we're built for. That's what these experiences shape us into is these stronger, more resilient beings. Was So through this, how how long since you were diagnosed? Is it a couple of years? 10 months only. Oh God. Wow. So that's... Yeah, that's probably my age, like thinking everything. <laughs> Last um, November, I was diagnosed and I was diagnosed right before Thanksgiving and I was sitting in chemo like December, middle of December. God, wow. That's okay. I mean, the last two years have been some kind of bizarre time warp, haven't they? So yes. I'll put that down. I'll put that down to that. Um, is During that time, has there been a moment, an experience that stands out? It's probably quite a strange question that, but what I mean is that stands out as a point where you you realize the truth in what you're talking about. You know, you realize the, you, you know what I'm getting at? Like, because you, obviously you've had all these experiences, you've had all these, you've had this ridiculously intense physical, emotional, mental experience over the last 10 months. And you've described so eloquently, like how you've, you know, how you've managed that emotionally. Um, but I do imagine there was quite a lot of, like you've already kind of alluded to it, there's quite a lot of times you probably had to talk yourself down, you know, like you had to convince yourself that, that, that it, that it was, that it was true, that this approach would work. But was there, a, was there in a moment where you, that, that enabled you to believe that it would help you get through it, this approach? Uh, I think there's, there's two moments that I, I feel like were really impactful through my journey. The first one was, Right when I was diagnosed, uh, it was kind of a scramble to get me into chemo. And at that time, I was trying to figure out if my hair was going to fall out. Like, there were so many physical things that I knew my body was going to go through. And that was really hard to, like, let go of, especially of a mom. I was still breastfeeding. I mean, especially of a mom of two boys, as a mom of two boys. I'm still breastfeeding. Like, I had to wean my baby from breastfeeding within three, three weeks. And, um, and yet I could look at my children and I knew that they were digesting my energy. 
And so I knew that my approach to this would affect them, good or bad. Yeah. And I had to make this experience a choice. I had to show them the power of choice. And so prior to going into chemo, prior to even potentially losing my hair, my doctor told me that my hair was most likely going to fall out. And there are mechanisms, like there's different tools that you can use to try to salvage your hair or save your hair so it doesn't fall out, like by freezing it. But I just decided, let's let go of these things. Let's let go of them and let the children be part of this decision-making process of choice. Yeah. I chose to shave my head because it doesn't matter. I didn't, I didn't need my hair to survive this. My hair was going to become a distraction. It was going to make me sad when I watched it fall out. So if I could be in control of that choice and show my kids that you can be in control of these choices, and then sure, life is happening and there's things that I can't control. I couldn't control the cancer, but I could control my attitude and I could control how I approach walking through this. And so sitting down in chemo, like envisioning that the chemo is sunshine. Not that it was easy every time because it definitely made me feel really sick, but changing that chemical compound of what I felt like was actually coming into my body. I just started realizing the power of my choice and how it was making me feel. And I felt like those two moments were really uplifting. And then when I felt my tumor melting away, I was highly encouraged, right? Like you're not everybody has that reaction to chemo. And I was seeing a reduction in the size of my tumor from this chemotherapy. And uh, so that was also another really great moment for me to say, okay, it's working. Whatever it is, it's working. Maybe I'm not supposed to die. And even if I am supposed to die, I'm going to do it on my terms with my choices. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the physical very physical real physical aspect of of this experience that you've been through and you know what just struck me when we were talking then i think you know in this situation i imagine hair becomes such a symbolic thing because it's almost like saying goodbye to your old life isn't it you know it's it's and you're an athlete as well you know like you're you you've for better or worse been defined by your physicality and i'm having interviewed a lot of athletes over the years I'm willing to bet that your self-esteem has perhaps been tied up to that that perception of you as an athlete and the physicality over the years that's very I mean we all have that to a certain degree um, but I think with athletes it's particularly pronounced isn't it so again with that in mind like there's another layer to this you know like to, so how how did that impact your sense of self like these physical changes and I don't just mean well I could I could mean obviously very you know as a woman um for for the obvious reasons but equally as an athlete you know like how was that another thing that you had to reconcile yes uh, it's so great that you brought this up because i think it's another great talking point but a personal insecurity of mine through snowboarding was i didn't like my forehead i didn't like like my wrinkles on my forehead i was getting older and i was being photographed with younger athletes we've all, we've all got them we've right? all got them yeah. right But so I always chose to wear a beanie uh, and I always had my hair in a long braid. That's how I felt most comfortable and most confident, you know, like no matter where I was, that's kind of how I approached my persona within snowboarding. And so when I shaved my head, it was really um, liberating, I guess, because 
I started to realize like it doesn't really matter. And if I would have done this prior to my diagnosis, people would have probably thought I was crazy. And yet yeah. in the diagnosis, it was empowering. And I thought that that was a really interesting like counterpoint for myself because now I, sure, I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've aged so much, but I don't care anymore. I don't really care about my physical being to the degree that I did before because I know I will never have that self back. And that's okay. It's going to take a long time for my hair to grow out. And at this point, I've like, I've already mourned it. I've grieved that self. And it's freeing because I've realized that that doesn't have to be my identity. That doesn't have to define me as the snowboarder that I am. I can still step up on my snowboard with a little practice now because it's been a while, but uh, I can still show up as the snowboarder without the looks and still be respected as that person. Well, these are, these are sort of traps we put ourselves in, aren't they really? Because no one else gives a shit, do they? Like, I mean, they really don't. I mean, it's so funny, isn't it? When you like, you know, like I'm mid 40. So a huge topic of conversation between me, me and all my friends are like the fact that we're all getting, you know, it's, it's getting harder to lose weight. It's getting harder to, to get over injuries. It's getting, you know, tedious middle-aged chat. Like, and, and again, like in your head, you still really see yourself as you did in your twenties. I think if, if you're being honest. So again, like to, to, to sort of square that one is, is a bit of a challenge really. And, um, but no one else gives a shit. Yeah. And yeah, I think there is like an identity that we try to fit within. And I don't know if it's like kind of an OCD thing too, that maybe some of us deal with as personas within our beings. Like there's a certain way I have to fix my gloves when I strap in, when I'm dropping in to ride a line. And there's a certain way I have to feel. And that confidence is really exuded within my spirit. It's all connected, right? Like I know myself so well that I know how I have to feel when I'm going to ride big mountains. Yeah. And so I can look at like my counterparts or peers or mentors or whatever, and I can see that similarity through all of us. It's just like how we feel the best self. It's kind of like when you want to go out on a date, you don't want to go in sweats. You want to get like dressed up. And that's kind of how I feel in my snowboard stuff. Like you have a vibe that you want to have. And, and you have rituals that enable you to get there as well. We've all got them as well. Exactly. Like, and so yeah. what do you do if you strip all of those rituals and standards away? You're still there, but you have to dig inside yourself instead of seeing it physically. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's well, it's another it's another sort of taboo, really, that doesn't get spoken about. And, you know, on that point, you've you've really you know you've revealed a lot of yourself again metaphorically and literally like with the with the, with how much you've chosen to 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 show people like you know you've posted some you know very revealing pictures that show the reality of the condition that you've had and and you know the the the, the surgery that you've had and like how much I'm guessing again this was like a real conscious choice you thought you know what I'm going to I'm going to embrace these taboos head on because they're yet another thing that we don't discuss you know when it comes to this topic like I think of breast cancer is is hugely discussed actually when it comes to these things, but again, not probably not to the extent that you decided to to lead that conversation, which was again like extremely powerful and 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 clearly from reading the comments, extremely confronting for a lot of people, you know, like so 
again, it was just a way of reclaiming the story and, and, and influencing the conversation. Was that what was at the, the, the kind of heart of that? Yeah, I think for my approach, uh, when I came out of my double mastectomy surgery, I, let me back up, when I was going into my surgery, I was so concerned. I was afraid of what it was going to feel like not to have boobs. My doctor had made it very clear that I probably should not have reconstruction. And as a female, your hair and your boobs are such a symbol of being a, fe- a female, you know? And yeah. Well, again, especially in, especially in our society. <laughs> yeah. And I have two little boys like, okay, I'm now the mom that has no boobs and my boys are going to have to like explain that to their friends all the time. So here was another choice for me of like, okay, how do I help other people see what this looks like? So it doesn't become the question I, I know personally If I saw a woman with no boobs, I would say, oh my gosh, what's happened? Like, if I can help share the transparent side of this journey so that other people can have a sense of compassion or empathy when they see another woman in this position and they have a little deeper understanding of what it is like or like that emotional connection, that baggage that we feel in losing our breasts, even if we go through reconstruction. The other thing that I've learned is like so many women that go through reconstruction are not happy with their reconstruction and maybe some are, but it's like also another taboo topic. Like even though you get new boobs, it doesn't mean that you're happy with what you have. And so just kind of stripping down and showing people what it looks like in the rawest form so that we can all kind of rise in education together. Yeah. uh, I felt like that was really again, in some ways liberating, but also I just hoped that it raised another level of impact for other people to experience this with me because I knew I was learning so much and I had so many questions. And if I have all of these resources and still have questions, I just wanted other people to feel like they had a a window in to know that they weren't alone. I mean, you put yourself in a position of like extreme vulnerability, like conventionally, you know, like the conventional take on, on that would be like, there's somebody putting themselves in a very vulnerable position, you know? And I think, again, that was where one reason for the reaction, um, because it's, it's rare to see that level of vulnerability publicly, basically. I mean, it just is. So when you see it, you, you take notice. And clearly a lot of people took notice. Um, but did you feel vulnerable or did you feel powerful? A little bit of both, but I want to lean more towards the powerful side because I was making these choices that felt right. That's why, I, that's why I ask really, you know, because it's about this reclaiming, isn't it? You mm-hmm. know, of, of perception and storytelling. Like, Yeah, it's like I wasn't doing it because I felt like guilty or ashamed. I felt like this is worth talking about and to dive a little deeper um five years ago my mom died and chris and i decided that we wanted to start a family and at that same moment we decided that maybe we should start documenting our journey into parenthood so five years ago we started making a documentary and that movie is now in post-production It embodies so many of these pillars that I've been through and really filming this documentary, which is going to hopefully be out next spring. um, 
has helped me realize that all the vulnerable sides that I've experienced and all of these challenges and all of these uh, pillars of impact through my life, they've all had these bigger puzzle pieces that have clicked together. And everything that I've been through has really given me the strength to kind of be the person that I am now. Five years ago, you couldn't have told me that I would be doing what I'm doing. You know, I was a very walled off person. I tried to be pretty protective of my personal space and my identity. And, you know, I was trying very hard to break down the walls of segregation within the industry and uh, equality. And those were my battles then, you know, and I look now and I've grown a lot since then. And people are going to grow with us through this movie. And they're going to see that this doesn't happen overnight. And I really do hope that people can watch this movie and realize that we all have these strengths, but it takes experience and it takes um, being cracked open. And by being cracked open, I really look at that as like following that path of least resistance and accepting what's happening as an opportunity to learn um, through and not to get too off topic, but it really has like this full, full circle approach where those photos of me with the really raw scars and even going through radiation, like that has allowed me to express myself in a way that has brought a truer understanding of our strength and our courage and our vulnerability to a, a new height. But it's because I've been through all of these other things that have shaped that. And people haven't seen that story being built because it's been very private. And now we're getting to a point where we will be able to talk more about the movie. And I think that that's going to open a whole nother uh, layer. Oh, wow. It sounds amazing. So have you been working on that with Chris, obviously, but I'm assuming there's quite a big, quite a bit of outfit involved in this. You know, it's well, really... maybe not outfit, but you know, like other people involved, let's put it that way. Yeah, we actually have had a really tight knit. Uh, we've had a filmer that has been with us for all of it. Tyler Hamlet with Flagship Independent and him and Chris had a really solid relationship prior to filming this movie. Um, they did Fire on the Mountain together as well. And he's just been with us through all of these pillars. And when we started that docu this documentary, we thought we were going to be sharing a story of two athletes traveling the world, experiencing parenthood together and kind of laughing about it. Yeah. And it's Instead, it really exposed a lot of things that had happened to me as a child that I hadn't addressed. And then it's moving forward through all of these moments of impact through the industry, um, speaking up about my pregnancy, having sponsors support me. Uh, there's so many layers that this film really uncovers. You know, my child, our child at two years old almost died from kidney failure. That was going into COVID. And then I'm diagnosed with cancer as we just welcomed a second child. Like there's so many things that we've experienced that that we've experienced that have been so trying. And so we've learned how to dig deep and find a, a greater way of living. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna. It's Koa, right? Your that your your son, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, that's another just another entire chapter in itself, isn't it? Like the was that experience? I'm not gonna. You know, did it help with this one? Like what you went through there? Because because again, it's another it's another test of life that you can choose to handle in a certain way. But again, like you know, you're a parent; it's your child. 
it's it's it, again that you know what I said earlier like it's easy it's easy to say that isn't it but in that situation it must be even harder to like to tell yourself that 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 you can get through this because that must seem particularly well cruel doesn't even come close does it you know just like the vagaries of the universe like coming striking you down like so yeah did was it was it something you were able to draw upon like those experiences that you shared as a family and I kind of would put this as a family question really because one of the other things that comes across is how close you all are and how you know you seem to do you do seem to like handle these experiences as, as a true unit you know yeah and I guess just to even slightly back up like so Chris and I have always had incredible careers we've ran parallel with our careers both being able to be pretty independent and self-focused on what was important to us and accomplishing goals in the mountains and uh, when my mom died, um, we were with her when she passed. So I saw death firsthand. And then after that, welcoming Koa, obviously, into the world, um, I was really trying to find my footing back in, into snowboarding. And I was trying to get back onto the mountain. And I wanted to be part of the Burton movie. And I showed up in Canada. And within three days, I was medevaced in, in hospitals. So the last four years have really, there's been this huge shift because no matter how hard I try to get back on my snowboard, the universe is like, no, talk about this, like yeah. address this, learn this from the, this. Grow. You've got this first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And with Koa, when he got sick, thankfully, uh, we got the right care at the right time and he is fine now and he is recovered, but going through that experience, you know, like watching my mom die and then being so close with Koa, it just makes you realize like, we're all going to die. We don't know how it's going to happen, but when somebody tells you how it's going to happen, it becomes really scary. Yeah. And yet if you died in a car accident or in, in, in an avalanche doing what you love, um, there's a different kind of acknowledgement there. You know, the grieving isn't less, but it's a different type of living because it happens yeah. fast. Yeah. Sure. And so when you go through these processes where you really have to fight to live and you have to fight for your children and you have to be a vocal ambassador for your children to live, uh, it does really brew a deeper strength. And that word is so numbing now because I feel like it's even deeper than that. You know, it's like it's a muscle that is being conditioned through all of these experiences and it takes practice. And so if you don't have trauma and you haven't had to go through things, even an injury can feel like the most devastating thing. You know, somebody tells you you're off snow because you tore your ACL and it's horribly devastating. And then if it happens again, you have that muscle and it's conditioned, you know what to expect. And that's where I feel like I'm at now is death isn't scary to me. Dying isn't scary to me. I've seen it. You know, I've been close to it. And yet living is so invigorating. And there's so much to do in this world. There's so much to see. There's so much impact to be had. And I'm not saying that I'm the one that's going to create that impact. But I think all of us really have a story to share. And if we can be our truest self and exercise that muscle and not being afraid to fit within that box, that's where we all grow. And it's uncomfortable. It's scary. It's vulnerable. But that's how we become that deeper understanding 
human. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you a question about, you've mentioned a couple of times your childhood. Like, I'm not going to ask you to explain, like, you know, what, what I, 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 I do have a kind of related question, is it, if it's all right if I ask you that. So, um, so my, like, it might be helpful if I kind of, like my childhood, like my parents got divorced when I was like 11 and that was, I think it was a fairly like bog standard sort of scenario really. Um, but it was definitely like the defining event of my life really in terms of, um, you know, like just for, for obvious reasons, I don't need to explain why, like, but, um, and basically I had a story that I told myself about that from the age of 11, you know, like I had a, and that story was very black and white you know it was very it was very much like it was quite a more it was quite a moral story as well and and it's and it's it's kind of like made me the person that I am actually that story because it's like it, it has defined my morality it's defined my my way that I am with people it's defined my relationships and I think what I kind of as I've got older have realized is like how generational it all is like and how how it it does pass down through generations like i like the, like family stories and trauma and like it's only now that i'm getting to this age that i actually fully appreciate that especially i'm not a parent myself but when i see my f- friends and family with their kids and i've spoken a lot to some very close friends about how the the, the childhood things that happened to them, the trauma or whatever it was like has really informed that the way that they now speak to their kids and, and if they're not careful almost contributes to passing it down like a generation. And the other thing that I've kind of realized is as I've got older is like, in my case, my dad who left, he's got a different story to me. And I wondered if that rings any bells with your uh with your the couple of things that you've alluded to because you've you've kind of mentioned your childhood in 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 a way that suggests you've you've maybe had to reevaluate that story recently would that be fair to say yes and i think the word story is exactly right when we are growing up when we're kids and things happen to us we don't understand the no. for us approach Everything is about safety and love and nurturing. And when that safety and that nurturing and that trust is threatened, it makes us question that for us, you know, and it, especially if we don't talk about it and we don't, I've learned in my personal experience, I didn't talk about it until later. Yeah. And so you're suppressing all of these things, thinking that you're doing things wrong and, those traumas or abuse that's happening as a child, which in my case, it was so, there was so many things that I felt like that were chaotic in my childhood, whether, I mean, my parents never married, my dad was an alcoholic, there was abuse, there's, there's so many layers there that really this movie will go into a greater depth. But I always thought that it was me. I thought I was the one that was causing all of that. I thought it was my fault. Um, And so I carried that with me so often through my life and I suppressed so much, which allowed me to compartmentalize well, which I feel like is what made me a great athlete because I was able to focus really well on things that made me feel fulfilled. 
and made me feel that peaceful, calm energy that I so longed for maybe in my childhood. And yet it's the story that we tell ourselves, especially now looking back on it. What I've learned the most is the story that I keep repeating to myself is the trauma. I'm telling myself the bad things that happen and that story becomes a trauma rather yeah. than looking at it now and going, okay, like it, those things made me the person that I am and they've strengthened me. They've made me, they might not have been right or great or good, but like I'm alive still and I need to learn how to channel that energy and turn it into something good. And I yeah. feel like those, um, those moments are really defining because so many of us might feel that generational trauma where our parents were trying their best. Yeah. It's not their fault. And what I've no. learned as becoming a parent is we do have to shift that narrative within our own beings. And personally, what I'm working on so heavily now is when I get frustrated or upset, or if I'm tired, I get triggered. And when I get triggered, I need to recognize why I'm getting triggered as a parent and address that inner child. You know, what is being triggered from when I was little that I didn't have or that I didn't feel safe that I am now passing down to my children? And when I can acknowledge that, I can take a deep breath and it doesn't pass on, you know, like it's awareness. And that awareness is really, it's so healing because we have to know, like our parents were doing the best they could and things happened. And we all carry different types of traumas. You know, we yeah. all have an unwritten story that we didn't like. There's something that our parents did that we didn't like. All of us, yeah. I'm sure. And so now that we are grown up and that we are going through these experiences of life, it's like, okay, channel that into how we can be better individuals instead of feeling like the whole world is collapsing on you. Yeah. I mean, the thing, I think... I, I'd never even considered it the way you just put it. Like when you're a kid, it happens to you rather than for you. I never even considered it, but it really, it really kind of chimes with the, the, I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently. And I mean, firstly, when I think back, I was like, I was, I was like 11 years old is so young. <laughs> it's, it's literally a child. You know, I was staying with some friends in recently who've got a 10 year old son and I was a bit, and I kind of was like, Oh Jesus, he's, he's a year younger than I was. Like, and I was, I was a bit like, blimey, you know, like even that realization, I was like, so, and, and I was a bit like, and it's really, that story was written by 11 year old me. And now I'm a 46 year old man. Like, so that, that in itself is quite interesting. And this, so I've, I've just kind of been thinking about it quite a lot recently and thinking maybe it's time to sort of relook at that, you know, I think I'm quite ready to. Um, because it's so, it's so, it's, there's a, there's a, it's entrenched. It's in there, you know. Yeah, um, we build resentment, we build fear, we build stress response. And like so much of what I'm learning through this breast cancer thing is like stress. Stress is a huge contributor to not doing well, not feeling well, getting ill. Our body responds yeah. to stress in different ways. And I can't say that all the things that I've done through snowboarding haven't stressed me in those ways, but um, holding on to these things that are building that animosity, maybe letting go of some of it and understanding, like maybe there's a different perspective, like, uh, and not, not to speak in your shoes, but I even look at my parents, like my mom did the best she could 
my dad and her loved each other, but they weren't a healthy match. She did what was right for her. Even though I didn't necessarily see that, they did what was right for them. And it impacted me. But that impact is what life's about. And that's what I'm really realizing going through all of these um, growth spurts is that if you were only given those tools as a child to realize that you were still safe and secure and that trust was there, I don't know, would it have changed that story? Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, I remember a friend of mine, a good close friend was getting divorced a couple of years ago and he got three kids and he was obviously devastated. And, and, um, and I think in my case, like the thing is like the pet, the, the grownups who, as you rightly say, were going through their own shit, didn't really make, didn't really give us a story as, as, as much as they sort of probably tried to, but they didn't really just because, you know, like we say, they, they, they were dealing with their shit. Um, and when my friend was talking about it, I actually said to him, like, look, it doesn't matter. Like you, you can get divorced, like your kids will be fine. They're always fine, but you've got to control not control the story, but you've got to give them a story that they can believe in about this. Because if you don't, they're going to make their own up and it might not be the one that you want them to make up um, because they're young kids and that's what they're going to do. And that's certainly what I did. And that is basically what, you know, that that defined my, those set of relationships to this day. And that's kind of my point about the generational thing, you know, mm-hmm. like, and when you start factoring in, like, like you say, like, parents dying and 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 those things that are coming down the road like again it's gonna have to be face isn't it you know so you might you might as well try and deal with it in the way that you've dealt with it which is to to try and use it as not fuel like necessarily but just as a way of controlling your own story and 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 that word to me is like the best word right the control so much of what I longed for as a child was control. I wanted to be able to control my environment. I didn't feel like there was that control. It did feel chaotic when I looked back at it. And I feel like there's a beautiful element there because control feels safe. And that's been a huge test going through this diagnosis for me because I can't control what my body's going to do, but I can control yeah. the outside. I can control I think- what I say and my, my appearance. I think that's why I I think if I'm being honest, like that's why when I mentioned earlier, like I'm concerned about how I'm going to react when life serves up the situations that are coming is because I think I, I think, I think, you know, the defining characteristic of serious illness is the lack of control. And and I've not experienced it, but I imagine that that is very, very difficult to, to deal with. You know, suddenly life is just, you don't, you don't get to choose anymore, do you? Like you just have to make the best of the situation that you've been given. And and I really yeah. had to choose to walk down this path where I, I like stepped away from all the noise. You know, there's so many opinions, so much insight, so many great things that want to be shared. But ultimately you have to choose the path and like stick to it. The same yeah. way you would see the mountains coming back to like my my metaphorical like appreciation for the mountains. It's like, everybody's going to see the mountain differently. Everybody's going to see it. It's a blank canvas and everybody's going to see a different line, but you have to do the one that feels most natural to you and your ability and your, your focus. Um, And that's where I, I think we all have that strength and we can all kind of line up together. When you go through a struggle, you have friends. You even just shared your experience with your friend going through his divorce. Like 
that hopefully changed that narrative for his kids and how he approached that situation because of an experience you shared. And that's the same way I feel like I go out in the mountains with the Burton crew or with my husband, you know, and like they share their experience of the mountains with me and help me see that greater potential of myself. And that's where I feel like we live this life so parallel, but so in sync with everybody. Energy is universal. If you're feeling down, I'll probably walk into the room and feel down, you know, like there's, there's like that universal thing that we all click into. And, and it's all about that shared experience of building and developing the ability to go through these challenges. And when you get faced with it, you're going to find that strength. You find it and it, and it comes to you and you harness it and you harness it the same way you would in the mountains when something unexpected happens because you've made a silly human factor mistake, you know? Um, so there's so much that we can relate to from our experience out of nature. Yeah. Wow, Kimmy. That was really, really great. I've, I'm really lucky doing this sometimes. Sometimes it's, it's really, really, yeah. Thought provoking, nourishing. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing that, you know, so honestly, I mean, obviously I knew you would, <laughs> which is why I asked you if you'd do it, but um, yeah, no, that was really great. Thank you. Really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you for opening the platform for me to share because it is something so important to me. So there you go. That was me and Kimmy Fasani and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I did say that was an extremely moving and insightful conversation, right? And having listened to it again, not that I sit here and like record the intro, then listen to the whole episode, then do the outro. That'd be ridiculous. Um, but I did listen to it again because we recorded this one, like I say, back in July. Um, yeah, I think it's. A, I think she's a remarkable woman, and I think that I really hope this one gets a good audience. I explored similar themes in my conversation with Tim Baker, surf journalist, a couple of years ago, and I think because Tim doesn't have that higher profile, really, it didn't get a huge amount of traction that one. But if you enjoyed this conversation, I really implore you to go back and check out the Tim Baker conversation because it's in the similar ballpark and Tim also tells his story with similar candor and openness. Um, and, you know, like I said in the introduction, it's in the post, this stuff. We don't like to think about it, particularly when we're younger, but, you know, these milestones, we're all going to have to deal with them. And I think if we could... Well, certainly if I could deal with them in the same way that Kimmy's dealt with them, I'd be I'd be pretty, well, firstly astonished, but secondly, um, quite proud, really. Um, so there you go. If you did enjoy this episode or find it insightful, give it a share, eh? Or head over to Substack or leave a comment, leave a comment on my Instagram post. It all helps and it all helps get conversations like this, which I do think the snowboarding and action sports world generally could do with um, get some out there so there you go thanks to owen for the zoom portraits as well another classic set there so as mentioned this episode was a bit of a double header with my friends at white lines i really recommend checking out their latest annual um as anyone who's listened to this for a while will be bored of me saying and it did make it into the matt bart looking sideways bingo that a friend of mine sent um i go way back with white lines i've been lucky enough to have an article in the mag for every year it's been published and this year's annual is amazing 200 pages of essential snowboarding that acts as always like a true document of the snowboarding year the best picks in the business beautifully reproduced and beautiful print quality stories on ak vancouver um, norway danny davis mia brooks and this this chat with kimmy in print form so head over to the white line site 
to audio copy today. What a pitch, eh? So yeah, housekeeping corner. Um, if you're with me, thank fuck they've gone. And if it's your first time listening to housekeeping corner, welcome. Um, you are very welcome. So I'm going to plug the book again, given it's Christmas and all that. Yeah, we still got some copies. Looking sideways, volume one left. And obviously, I'm biased, but I'm going to say it's the perfect gift for the surf, skate, and snow loving person in your life. A great present present to ask for. If you love the podcast and were too tight to buy a copy yourself, come on. I know there's plenty of you out there. And also a great way of supporting the podcast generally. Um, hopefully the thing will be on Amazon by then as well. Uh, I've actually been writing a blog. At the, I mean, I've been writing it on and off for a few months now. Um, the five mistakes we made when putting together Looking Sideways Volume 1. I did write a version and then I sent it to a friend of mine who's a journalist to check and he's like, fuck me, that's pretty downbeat, isn't it? Um, so I'm revisiting it, but that'll be going out soon. You can sign up to the newsletter, um, over at my Substack, um, lookingsideways.substack.com or via the Substack tab on my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. Why did I write that piece? Um, well, cause I think we made a load of mistakes firstly. And the reason I bring that up now is because I've had a cut. I, I, what basically happens is when people order that book, quite a common reaction is like wow this is a million times better than i thought it was going to be <laughs> which is pretty funny um and i think that was one of the issues like i just don't think we sort of talked about it or pitched it correctly which considering our work in marketing is kind of hilarious um so i just wanted to explore that really because a big part of doing creative projects is you know you you always fuck them up and you just need to learn from them i mean owen are talking about doing another trip in 23 um like the the northern leg like ventura to san francisco he's mad keen to do another book as usual i'm a bit like oh fucking hell really um but i'm coming around to the idea and i think this blog will cathartically help me prepare myself for it um but like i say i think i've just about managed to get it on amazon which i've been putting off for about nine months now um and that's because i've been quite busy to be honest segway alert this time of year for me is selection committee time for natural selection, which means I've been in late night Zoom meetings for the last six weeks with my fellow selectors, Liam Griffin, Travis Rice, Mary Walsh, Pat Bridges and Ed Lee this year. And um, watching as much footage as I can to help hone those deliberations. At the time of recording, we're almost there with that. So I expect some announcements for the 2023 lineup soon. And then I've also had the honour of being on the jury for the London Surf Film Festival for the second year, which has been brilliant. It means I've spent a lot of time watching the latest surf releases as part of that. Um, Owen did say something quite funny. He was, because I was sort of saying, you know, like the, being on the selection committee, I mean, to keep up with everything every year is obviously quite a lot of work. And he was a bit like, we got more fucking luck than you should you know why the fuck you're a juror on the london surf film festival i never know being given our shit you are at surfing <laughs> or something like that um you know whatever um anyway i've been watching a lot of uh surf films standouts for me i'm gonna just put it out there um now that my votes are in savage waters i watched it again you know mikey was on the show back in april um i've watched it about three times up now i'm and i'm now thinking it's actually a really insightful look into the vagaries of the professional surfing life as much as it is a story about the nights. Um, 
so I highly recommend that if you've not seen it. Then I also enjoyed a film called Facing Monsters, an Aussie film um, about a guy called Kirby Brown, uh, a soft-spoken, hard-charging West Australian uh, bogan, really, who has made clearly made a specialty of slinging himself into the heaviest ledges anywhere in the world. I'm going to say the footage in in this is mental. Um, you know, think ship sterns and then dial it up a bit, basically. This film has got one of the heaviest slam rescue situations you're likely to see. And it's also just a really good portrait of what drives somebody to put themselves in these, frankly, terrifying positions. I mean, I was watching it and I was just a bit like, how are people not dying? You know, it's it's, it's that kind of thing, really. Um, I also really enjoyed the Tom Lowe documentary made by a very talented Cornish filmmaker called Jack Whitefield. I, visually fantastic, great portrait of Tom, really individual aesthetic. Also like a really interesting kind of look at Cornwall and the depri- deprivation really that spawned that generation of, you know, extremely talented creatives and chargers, you know, basically uh, Mickey, uh, Matt Smith, um, Foxy, Jack Johns. Like, you know, there's a lot of them that all came from that scene. And I think this kind of really captures where they came from, you know, pretty effectively, really. Um, So, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um, In the short category, I really like Lauren Hill, very much a friend of the podcast. I really liked her new film, The Physics of Nose Riding. And I also really enjoyed uh, Vona, I think is how you say it, a film about Kepo Sarah's trip to Turkey, which we chatted about when Kepo was on the podcast earlier in the year. I mean, it's right up my street, that. You know, that was kind of my approach when I was doing a lot of traveling with snowboarding to just go the weirdest places possible as in weird as a place to go snowboarding and surfing and I think you know Kappa's Odyssey to the Black Sea Turkish coast is really interesting and beautifully made brilliant soundtrack so really like that um, by the time this is out I'll have also hosted a Q&A around the new expose on the dirty secret at the heart of surfing which is called the Big Sea very much looking forward to seeing this um it's been made by a couple of friends, filmmaker Lewis Arn- Arnold and uh, producer-writer Chris Nelson. And by all accounts, I haven't seen it while I'm recording this. So I'm going to watch it tomorrow ahead of the Q&A. It is quite the expose of um, a glaring environmental contradiction of the heart of the surf industry. So, yeah, I think it's going to ruffle a few feathers from what I can gather. And I'm going to be doing that Q&A after the exclusive screening 26th November, this will be out by then, but if you're there, you know, come and say hello, blah, blah. How are you going to do that? It's already out. Um, And then on Friday, 2nd December, myself and Owen are taking part in a workshop ourselves, being interviewed this time, probably by Chris or Demi from London Surf Film Festival, on the topic of creativity, also at the London Surf Film Festival. (sighs) Yeah, that's a lot, isn't it? That's why I've ever so slightly taken my foot off the gas with the pod and broken away from the usual weekly schedule. Um, I'm actually quite happy with that output, to be honest. I mean, a, qu- a question I get a lot is like, fuck me, you're busy. How'd you get all this done? And, you know, one of the one of the things I try and do is like not get get mad at myself if I can't stick with the podcast. You know, if it starts becoming a stress, I'm always a bit like, oh, OK, you know, time to calm down. It's supposed to be a laugh, this. And also when I started the show five years ago, I was running my company, All Conditions Media, and I think we had like five staff members, and now we've got 20 people working there. So in the five years, things have changed somewhat. But yeah, hopefully once things calm down a little post-Christmas, um, it'll be able, I'll be able to get back to the weekly schedule. Um, 
Big downside to being this busy is my reading has fallen right off a cliff. This is easily the worst year for reading I can remember. Um, I'll probably still do a top five books of the year blog though, as is tradition. And speaking of tradition, I am, of course, planning the festive podcast with Tim and Gendel. Another tradition is me, Tim and Gendel, basically having endless WhatsApp conversations about when we're going to do it. Um, but it will happen. I will make that happen because that's a very popular episode, that one. All right, that is it. Um, I'm off. Um, I'm going to watch some more of the World Cup and finish my beer. Huge thanks to my friends at White Lines, particularly Ed Blumfield, Kimmy for doing the episode, Owen for doing the pics, and to you for listening. Nice one.